Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Last month, Mitchell Rosansky was installed as the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. Louis. He is only the 10th man ever to hold that job. And he comes to St. Louis after six years as the Bishop of the Springfield Diocese in Western Massachusetts. And he joins us today to talk about who he is and what some of his plans are. So, Archbishop Rosansky, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's good to be with you today. So you were installed almost exactly a month ago. What's been the biggest challenge during your first month as the St. Louis Archbishop? Well, certainly St. Louis is a large archdiocese with many, many facets. So my challenge is, and I believe not only in this past month, but in the next few months, is getting to know the priest, the religious men and women, the deacons, and the laity. Uh, of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, uh, the way in which parishes bring the message of the gospel, and the way in which our different institutions uh, serve so many people. Now, I imagine meeting some of those people and getting to have those conversations, that's probably really been complicated by the coronavirus. Has it been harder to have those sort of face-to-face conversations that we used to take for granted? It does present uh, some problems in being able to get out and to meet people, but I think uh, our priests and our parishes have been very creative in the ways in which they have welcomed me and in which I was able to at least uh, greet people and say hello to them respecting social distancing and and keeping the mask on. It feels like it's just such a weird time, not just for somebody to be in a new job, but just in general. And I think for many of us, church attendance, um, getting to do it in person, it's it's been a casualty of this pandemic. We don't want to be there spreading germs. Um, And it feels like singing together and, and being there in person with each other. These are two things that Christians have done for centuries. Did you ever imagine that you'd have to put those things off limit, except under certain conditions, the way we have to do it now? Well, Sarah, it has been a challenge uh, for all of our churches in, in, the way, in the ways in which we really want to be together, and, and the Eucharist, the Mass, is the source and summit of our prayer life. So that has been very problematic. Uh, however, we realize, too, that we are trying to do all that we can in order to stem the spread of the virus. So our churches have been very... Uh, uh, organized in the way that they uh, disinfect the, the church after each Mass. Uh, our schools have been uh, very, very attentive to disinfecting and being safe for our students. So we do have those opportunities to come together, respecting social distancing, respecting wearing the mask, and really respecting one another so that we do not contribute to the spread of the virus. I've been very proud of the way our parishes and schools have been doing that, uh, as I've observed over this past month. I know that, um, you know, people are back, they're having services, they're having it with all these precautions being taken, but then there's also a lot of people, maybe they have pre-existing health conditions or they're just more worried about germs who are staying home. Do you, do you worry people might just get in the habit of, of not going to church anymore on Sunday due to this weird six-month pause in, in so many activities? Well, first of all, I think that uh, we think of the safety uh, particularly of those who have those pre-existing conditions that might make them especially susceptible to the effects of the coronavirus. So I encourage that they would use their good common sense if, if they feel that they cannot come into a, a church to really stay at home until the danger is over. 
But I also think that when I talk to people who uh, have been away because of, of not being able to go to church when, when the virus first started spreading, um, they say to me, it's so good to be back. Hmm. Uh, even if we have these restrictions, it's just good to be back. And uh, our parishes have been very good in live streaming and continue to live stream for people who cannot get to Mass. But I feel that those who are returning are feeling that it's a good, good uh, feeling to be back. Hmm. So it might even give us some appreciation for something that we've, we've grown to take for granted. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yes. <laughs> now, in your installation, you cited racism as a threat and, and compared it to the coronavirus. You called it a man-made plague. How big a problem do you think racism is in our society and, and within the church? Well, we've looked at the, um, at the history of, of racism in our country going back 400 years, and we, we still see the devastating effects of racism today. So as a church, and I believe united with uh, other faiths, um, we can address this sin of racism, and we can help to get to its roots and grapple with it. Uh, if we don't speak about it, we won't be able to address it. So in speaking about it, in being able to talk about racism, then we're able to have the issues before us and work with those issues. What would you say to this idea that St. Louis, um, the namesake of this archdiocese, the namesake of this city, um, that he himself was part of the problem? There's there's people who want to see that statue come down. Um, they're saying that he can't be defended. His actions can't be defended. What would you say to that? Well, first of all, I, I look at the life of St. Louis of France. He was a man who was very dedicated to justice. He took care of the poor. He invited his subjects, those of the poorest of the poor, to his table to dine with him. Mm -hmm. And here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis and around our country and around the world, um, the work for racial justice and reconciliation is far from over. We continue to work with our interfaith partners closely, and we see the opportunities for uh, ongoing interfaith dialogue and continued progress. So I believe if we look at so many of the good things that King Lewis did in his lifetime, he can give us an example to find a way to work through the ills of, of today. Do you think we also have to confront the darker side of that? You know, he had a history of, of persecuting Jewish people, for example, and I know the Church has worked really hard to, to restore good relations between Catholics and Jews. Do we have to acknowledge that he was not what we aspire to on that front? Well, I think we have to look at really the entire history of the Catholic Church and the Jewish people, and uh, we see that there have been uh, so many difficulties over the centuries. Since Vatican II, uh, the groundbreaking document called Nostra Aetate, meaning in our time, uh, opened up our relationships with the Jewish people in such a way that we cooperate on so many things now, and for the past 50 years, uh, we have really had that spirit of cooperation, mutual understanding, and working together that has benefited both of our faiths in such wonderful ways. We're talking today to Archbishop Mitchell Rosansky. He was installed last month as the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. Louis. He came to us from the Springfield Diocese in Western Massachusetts.
There's also been a lot of coverage locally about how the Jesuits who built St. Louis University, um, they had enslaved people working for them at the point when they founded the university. And I, I know you're not in charge of the Jesuits. They, they have their own separate thing going on. But do you see some similarities between coming to terms with that past and what the church has had to do in, in recent decades, um, coming to terms with, uh, with sexual abuse by priests? Sure. We, we, we know that the Church is made up of humans, and that uh, we are on our way to the Kingdom, but we know that the Kingdom is not yet here. And so, over the years, over the centuries, we look at different ways in which we have not lived up to the call of Jesus in the Gospel. We seek to correct those ways, uh, and I know that the Jesuits have been uh, working on that at Georgetown University and at St. Louis University. Uh, in addressing the sin of uh, racism and of slavery, and that we know we have a ways to go. So we are a people who ultimately base our hope in the Lord Jesus, who brings us to the goodness of his kingdom. And we address those difficult issues as we work on the way to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I know you had to address some of those difficult issues when you were in Springfield. Um, there was a very public case there involving a former bishop, and this was decades before your time there. Um, he'd been accused of raping and molesting an altar boy. And you appointed a retired judge to look into how that case has been handled, and he had some some pretty big criticisms. And he was criticizing some things that happened um, during your ten- tenure in terms of this diocesan review board. He said that uh, it was clear in my examination the process included an inexplicable modification and manipulation of the reports received by and acted on by the Diocesan Review Board. The complaint process was compromised in that mandatory reporters failed in their duties to report the allegations to prosecutorial authorities. What do you take from that situation? And I guess what would you attribute that failure to that, that the retired judge found? Well, first of all, I would say that um, there is uh, an, uh law that if there's any minor who is in immediate danger of uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse and a mandated reporter comes across that information, then it has to be reported immediately. Mm-hmm. In the case of the man who came uh, to the review board, uh, his case was over 50 years old and those whom he was alleging abused him were dead. Mm -hmm. So uh, immediate reporting of anybody who's in current danger of being abused uh, is the responsibility of the mandated reporter. This was a case where all of those who were cited in it uh, were dead, and uh, there was no immediate danger of, of physical or sexual abuse, and certainly the man by the time he came forward, was an adult. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an understanding that we have to have in that case. Uh, Also, to um, say that when you're looking at cases that are decades old, it's very, very difficult to uh, be able to put together uh, the full story and to find the facts. So that's why I appointed uh, Judge Bielis, who was able to look not only at the findings uh, of, of the case, but also to look at the process. And we were looking for how can we improve that process? How can we make uh, that reporting go more smoothly for any alleged victim that comes forward? 
and how can we make that process uh, serve better? Mm -hmm. And I was very, very um, pleased that Judge Bielis took his time in examining that case, and also I appointed a task force that would take his recommendations and would recommend to not only the review board but to the bishop how we could improve uh, our uh, service to victims. So that was the ultimate goal of uh, having Judge Fielis do the report. And do you feel like you were able to learn um, from that final report things that, that might be handy here in St. Louis? Oh, certainly. And uh, already have uh, started implementing uh, some of the things that Judge Fielis recommended in that report here in St. Louis. Hmm. Well, that's great. Do you think the Catholic Church is in a position where it can begin to regain the trust of the American people? I mean, the Church has been grappling with this so publicly now for a couple of decades. Are we ready um, for that process of of people, I don't know, being willing to to think of this as something that happened in the past? Well, first of all, I don't ever want to let our guard down. And having our people, our priests, our, our religious men and women, our deacons, all those who serve in the Church as catechists and teachers, uh, not to let our guard down. We cannot do that. Mm-hmm. So we have to keep our guard up always. So this is not a thing of the past. This is an issue of the present. However, I do find that over the past 20 years, uh, since we've had the Dallas Charter, uh, we have put those uh, things in place that help us to uh, respond quickly to any allegation of abuse, notifying law enforcement immediately, uh, taking the person out of the position that he or she is in, and having uh, quickly examine uh, the uh, allegations of the uh, person who alleges the abuse. Uh, all of that has to happen very, very quickly. So that's what I believe helps us to regain credibility. Our work with law enforcement, our commitment to making sure that if there's ever an allegation, it is investigated thoroughly, and the fact that uh, if that allegation is found to be credible, then the person is not back in active ministry. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about something else in relation to this present moment that we're in. And um, this is something else you talked about in your installation. You talked about Catholics being gateways, not gatekeepers. What's the distinction on that? Well, Jesus asks us to be the people who show forth his love in the world. And so we are called to bring the light of the gospel to the world. And that's being a gateway. And I use that image because it was so, so uh, tangible to me in knowing that the gateway to the West, uh, the arch is the symbol of that gateway to the West. So I picked up that symbol. Being a gatekeeper means keeping people out. And uh, we're not, we're not in, the, uh, in the work of our faith to keep people, people out, but to invite people in. And that's where I said we're called to be gateways and not gatekeepers. So that leads me to, on a more personal note, I know you grew up in Baltimore. Um, You spent most of your career as a priest there before you were assigned to Springfield. Um, Having spent your entire career pretty much on the East Coast, does the Midwest, the gateway city that you're now in, does that feel like an alien place in some ways? I have found the Catholic faith here to be 
very, very deeply established. Uh, the history of the Catholic faith in St. Louis to be uh, a wonderful history. And I found that the devotion of our Catholic people here in St. Louis uh, has really been very, very edifying. So the same faith that I served in Baltimore, the same faith that I served in Springfield, I now serve in St. Louis. And that's really what keeps me grounded, and that's why St. Louis feels like home so quickly. It already feels like home for you. It does. It does indeed. So you're 62 years old. Do you see yourself spending the rest of your career here in St. Louis? I see myself as being at the surface of the church. So I said, when, whenever I am called to go, I go. I'm at the service of the church. It could be at 62 years old, this could be it. And I'm hoping it is, but always open to the service of the church. Well, Archbishop Mitchell Rosansky, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been good to talk with you. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org, or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.